Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will bring it to pass. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as usual. Make sure you're in fellowship. Give you a few moments to kind of shake out the cobwebs from the day and refocus so we can cover a lot of ground tonight because we're back into our straight line study on Hebrews 9. But we have to do a little review to catch up and then a lot of other fun stuff. So uh, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the way that you have revealed yourself to us. And in your wisdom, you have not revealed yourself to us in a systematic theology. You have not revealed yourself to us in one total lump. But you have gradually, progressively revealed things to us down through the centuries. And as you have, in doing it the way you have, it has forced us to think more deeply, more profoundly about what you have revealed, about who you are, about what you have revealed. And it keeps us from becoming lazy and just taking things for granted. Father, we appreciate the fact that you have given us in this age the Holy Spirit who indwells us and enables us to understand these things. And as we uh, continue to study your word, we pray that you would use what we study to give us a greater appreciation and awe of who you are and what you have done for us, and that we might come to a greater grasp of all that you have provided for us and that we may live on the basis of who and what we are in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I said before we prayed, we are in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 now. But before we go any, into any detail in Hebrews 9, 1, we need to take a little time to go back and see where we've come from in the first eight chapters of Hebrews. We have spent about three months or so, maybe four, on the New Covenant and I don't know about most of you, but this morning when I started getting into Hebrews 9.1, I had to take a lot of time to go back over and get reoriented into just where the flow of thought was from the, by the author of Hebrews. And so often we don't take that time to go back and resettle. So uh, I want to do that before we get started. So you can just open your Bibles if you want to follow along in our review to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and while we are doing that, 
I finally figured out how to make a couple of things work on this, I hope. Famous last words, right? Okay, so we'll go to Hebrews 1. And we're just going to sort of walk our way or run our way through Hebrews. Okay, as I pointed out at the beginning, we have these various sections in Hebrews. And these sections in Hebrews are built around a teaching portion or a didactic portion where the writer of Hebrews is explaining doctrine, and much of this is being taken out of an Old Testament context. And we have to remember that he is writing to Jewish believers, and it is assumed by the content of the book that these are priests, former priests, who are now wondering if they should not go back into Judaism, go back into uh, <clears throat> and desert Christianity, and go back into service Uh, in the temple. And that concept of serving in the temple, that word service is a key word that is going to take on more significance as we get into into chapter 9. So each of these sections has a teaching portion, and then at the end of the teaching portion, there is an application, an exhortation, and an exhortation is really nothing more than a challenge, a challenge to put into practice or to apply uh, the principles that have just been laid out. And so we have a teaching portion and then an exhortation. And in most of the exhortations, there is a warning, a warning not to fall away, not to become passive in your Christian life, not to just slip into neutral and kind of go through the motions, but to continue to pursue spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, because we have a a destiny with the Lord Jesus Christ to share in his inheritance to be uh, joint heirs with Christ in the millennial kingdom and to serve with him, and that what we're doing right now in our Christian life is preparing us for that future time to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the book begins with the uh, uh, four-verse prologue in the first section, the first four verses, which focuses our attention on the Son, and he is identified as being the flashing forth of God's essence. He is identical with God's essence, essence, but the focus on is on his sonship, and that sonship isn't just that he is the son of God, which is the eternal aspect, but that he is the future heir, which relates to the fact that he he is the son of man. And as a son of man, he will ascend and seat at the right hand of, the, of God the Father. As a son of man, he will come back and he will establish his, his kingdom. And as a son of man, uh, he receives the inheritance. And so the focus in the first four verses is on him as the future heir who is now seated, and we are seated in him. And so we learn from these four verses that God has now spoken definitively and completely and finally in his son. Nothing could surpass that, and so this is one argument for the, uh, for the cessation of revelation. The son is appointed heir of all things, we learn here, and that when he had made purifications, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is a key phrase that we run into again and again through uh, through our study of Hebrews, that he is at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a, more, a name more excellent than they. And that inheritance can't relate to his deity, because in his deity he's always been better than the angels. 
So that inheritance has to be related to what he accomplished in his humanity. And then in the next section, in the next section we go down to verses uh, 5 to 11. And as you can tell, just looking at the text with the indentation, these are comprised of a series of Old Testament quotations. And in and what the writer does is he weaves together approximately uh, eight Old Testament quotations. He has seven Psalms and one quote from Isaiah 51.6, and he weaves these together in order to establish and document his point that the Messiah was expected to come and to and to rule, and that he would fulfill all that God had intended for man. And the conclusion comes in the last verse of the, ch- of the chapter, which is in verse 14. Are they not all, referring to the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service, key word there, service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Jesus Christ in 1.4 is the heir. We will inherit salvation. It's a future concept. So we look at, the, at this idea of salvation as something that is future. It's phase three. It's what we are rewarded with at the judgment seat of Christ. Having laid out this, this foundation of who Jesus is as higher than the angels, as the one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the writer of Hebrews then goes into the next, uh, or goes into the exhortation and warning and says, if God has done all of this, sending the second person of the Trinity to become a man, having him live his life on earth, the whole period of the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, his present session in heaven, if God has done all of this to establish this inheritance that we're going to get, this inheritance salvation, how can we neglect it? If we're in this train for how in the world, once we grasp what God has provided for us, can we possibly let that just slide and become complacent about our our destiny, our eternal destiny, what God is doing in our lives? So we have the challenge then in the verse that is well known to many people, but usually it's applied to the to phase one salvation, justification salvation. And it's the verse, verse three, chapter two, verse three. How will we escape that, uh, escape some kind of judgment, some kind of, uh, um, discipline if we neglect so great a salvation? Because if the, and the point he's made here is if Old Testament saints didn't listen to God and they were disciplined, how can we escape when we have a much better package than they had? And this picks up one of the main themes that we have in the introduction in the first four verses, which God has now spoken in his Son. And if God has spoken, that implies a response on our part to to obey what he has spoken. And so uh, verse 2 says, If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how can we neglect our salvation? And so we're challenged to press on. Then we came to the second, the second section. And the didactic section here is a little bit longer. Each section gets a little longer. And this is from chapter 2, verse 5 to 3, 6. And in chapter 2, verse 5, the subject shifts to the role of man. Man as man. Why did God create Adam? Why did God put 
uh, humanity on the planet. As God's representative, we were destined to rule and reign over this planet. But when Adam sinned and caused the fall, the human race collapsed under the condemnation of sin. We were spiritually dead, separated from God. And so for God to fulfill his plan, he sent himself, the second person of the Trinity, to become incarnate, to become a human being, to go through the whole life testing, suffering process to pass the test that Adam failed so that Adam, um, so that Christ then could succeed as the second Adam to be the one who would, as a human being, rule and reign over the planet and fulfill God's initial plan for man. And that's the theme of this whole section. And it culminates in his royal high priestly ministry. So in verses uh, 5 through 9, chapter 2, 5 through 9, we see Jesus set forth as the one who is to fulfill the destiny of man to rule. He's the one, man is the one that God has appointed to rule over the works of his hands, verse 7. Verse 8, he's put all things in subjection under his feet. But what we see in verse 9 is that he who is made a little while lower than the angels, that is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste, that is, fully experience, death for everyone. Verse 10, for it is fitting for him for whom all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting for him, that is, God the Father, to mature the author of their salvation through their suffering. So if Jesus has to go through the suffering and go through this process to be mature, how much more must we who are fallen and under uh, the dominion of slavery to sin? And so the point in verses uh, uh, 10 through 13, that Jesus had to be a man and mature the same way we do and pass, uh, pass the test that Adam failed. As one like us, he is a merciful and faithful high priest, to make propitiation for us. That's the verses 14 through 18. Therefore, uh, we see here that um, he shares in the same flesh and blood that we do. And the result of this, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now stop a minute. Think about this. What the writer is doing so far up to 2.17 is to build a case. He is laying out a trajectory that is pointed to this whole doctrine of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that becomes the underlying doctrinal foundation for the rest of this epistle, working out, unpacking, the implications of Christ's present high priestly ministry, that he went through all of these things in phase two of his life during the incarnation so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So his priestly ministry is related to his sustenance, his aid to every believer in their spiritual life because he has gone through and been tested, as we'll see in verse in chapter 4, in every way as we are, we have a high priest who can identify with our testing. Once again, it comes back to that high priestly idea. So down through verse 18, 
we see the, the teaching about Jesus and his maturity, and this leads to his role as our merciful and faithful high priest. And as we follow his pattern, uh, we get into chapter 3, as we follow his pattern, then uh, we also will grow and we will share in that ruling destiny. And again, we should, you should underline or point out uh, uh, highlight in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 1, again, the me- mention of the fact that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, there's another word. This word confession pops up, that we're to hold fast to our confession later on, and that means that we are to hold fast to our doctrine, to, to what we affirm to be true. And if we believe something is true and it doesn't impact our life, then do we, does it really matter if we believe it's true? And we ought to think about that. If you say you believe something is true, even if it's not something that's too earth-shattering, if it's true, it ought to change things in your life if you didn't believe it was true before. But if you believe something that it's true that is of the magnitude of what the Bible teaches and it doesn't change anything about your life or how you carry, carry out your life or how you conduct yourself uh, socially, how you conduct yourself in business, how you conduct yourselves uh, in your marriage and your family and things like that, then does it really matter whether you believe it or not? So that's the kind of world in which we live is where people want to just compartmentalize our faith. And for 200 years, the pressure of the cosmic system has been to get Christians to go in a closet and compartmentalize their Christianity from everything else. Uh, it doesn't matter what you believe, that's fine, just keep it to yourself on Sunday morning, but don't get out into the marketplace of ideas and think that uh, you have a right to impact anybody else or challenge anybody else on the basis of what you believe. I mean, they can impact people on the basis of what they believe, and that's fine, but if you try to impact people on the basis of what you believe as a Christian, well, that's not acceptable. And that's really where we are and where we've come in our culture. And it's been interesting the last uh, week to watch and to read some of the responses to the uh, Ben Stein uh, film, Expelled, because the other side just doesn't get it. And what they don't, one of the things that they don't get is they keep responding by saying, well, what these people want to do is introduce God into the classroom, and they are right. It isn't, they understand that intelligent design, if there's an intelligence out there, the kind of intelligence that would design everything has to go beyond any creature. And so they understand accurately that's, that's where this automatically and necessarily goes. But you see, the, the failure that they have is that they think that it's wrong to, to have any kind of theistic any kind of theism in the classroom, because that's bringing religion into the classroom. But what they fail to understand, which is that shows the inherent irrationality of their whole thinking, is that if anything that's stated positively belongs in a category of thought, then if that same thing is stated negatively, it also belongs in that same category of thought. In other words, if theism is, a, is religious... Atheism is just as religious. A statement, there is a God, is just as religious as the statement, there is no God. And so to take God out of the classroom and to take a God out of biology, 
is just as religious as putting God into biology. And they just they don't want to understand that. Well, whose God are we going to put there? Well, now you, then you have a problem. Because whatever you put in there, even if you don't put anything there as a religious statement, there is no neutrality. Secularism is neutral. There was a 1973 decision by the Supreme Court of the United States that stated that secular humanism was religious. It fit all the categories and all the characteristics of a religion. So we live in a world that just wants to compartmentalize Christianity and put us in the closet. And unfortunately, too many Christians have fallen prey to that because that's sort of a trend of our sin nature. It'll gravitate to that because that's always that part of spiritual warfare that, well, I, I can... I can just compartmentalize my life. So there's a there's a uh, a trend there. There's an affinity in our in our own sin nature to to sort of accept that and to uh, pick up these ideas from the culture. But whenever we're living on the basis of the ideas that our atheistic culture puts out, we just become functional atheists. It doesn't matter how much doctrine we have, how many times we go to church. When we're living on the basis of the world system, it's just functional functional atheism. Or we can even press it further, as we've seen. It's just thinking like the devil. It's just another form of demon influence. So we are to recognize that we are partakers of this uh, participants, metakoi in the the Greek. We are partners in this future kingdom rule that Jesus is going to have. And so if we follow in his pattern of growth, we will (coughs) share in his destiny. And then when you get into chapter 3, verses 7 down through 19, which is another long section, there is uh, several quotes, at least three quotes from Psalm 95, 7, to listen to the word. And that's, that's the whole thesis here, going back to the Jews in the Old Testament, that they failed to listen to the Lord. And so we are warned not to harden our hearts as they did, but to listen to the Lord. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And the result was that they didn't enter into God's rest. That, that, that uh, Exodus generation failed to listen to God, and so they failed to experience the blessing that God had for them in going into the land. And so there's a, a, a warning there in this section uh, that, uh, that uh, of the, the dangers of uh, starting in 3.7 down through 4.13 is the warning section, and this is where you have the dangers of falling away, not believing God, and not listening to God. And again, in chapter 3.15, if today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Again and again, there's this reiteration of this particular warning, and then chapter 4 picks it up again and reiterates this, uh, one more time in chapter 4, verse 7, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. The point is that if you harden your hearts, you will miss out on that blessing. And if we become complacent in our Christian life, then the result is we will miss out in rewards, responsibilities, privileges in, of ruling and reigning with Christ when he comes in his kingdom. Then in chapter 4, verse 14, we come to the next section. It begins with a therefore. So we know that the writer is drawing a conclusion out of everything that he has said before. And he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, and once again, we ought to circle, highlight that that phrase, connect it back to the earlier uses of high priest, because everything that he's saying 
is connected to the fact that Jesus Christ is our present high priest. And in verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast our confession. There's that word again, not to fall away from what we believe. And then there's an explanation in verse 15 that since we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, he's been through every kind of uh, test, category test that we face, uh, he can sympathize with our weaknesses, yet is one who ha- is without sin, and therefore we can go with confidence to the throne of grace. Now, remember that in chapter 4, verse 16, because we pick up this same idea of because he's high priest, we can have we can go with confidence before the throne of God a couple of more times in, um, <coughs> in Hebrews. So we come down to uh, chapter 5. Well, Y'all can read that, right? Hit the wrong button and jumped over too many Bibles. Okay. We get to uh, chapter 5. Again, developing the idea of the high priesthood. In chapter 5, he talks about the limitations of the human high priest in the first five verses, that one of their limitations is they're sinners and they have to offer sacrifices for their own sins. And then we come into chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, and focuses on the fact that Christ is not that kind of high priest. He is designated by God. You are my son today. I have begotten you. This is the second time that Psalm 2 is quoted. And also Psalm 110.4 is brought in. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he introduces now this Melchizedekian high priesthood category. But the people aren't ready for this, and so he is going to have a a diversion at this point because he says that they're not ready to listen to this. And he's, he's built up to this point. And then in verse 11 he says, Concerning him that is Melchizedek, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. And then we basically have a reproof section in the exhortation from 511 down through uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Starting in verse 9, he's going to talk about the fact that he's really convinced of better things. But first he has to uh, give them a little bit of a verbal uh, discipline. And in 511, uh, excuse me, in uh, 5, 5 through 10, he talks about the second person of the Trinity, his, that he's, after, he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In his incarnation, he offered prayers and supplications, which is what's related to the role of a high priest. He's qualified to be a high priest and learned obedience through suffering in 5.8. He's also matured in 5.8 that he might provide salvation. Then, starting in 5.11, we have the exhortation and challenge. The warning is really just in the middle of uh, 6.4-8. The rest of it is it's a, it's a challenge to obedience. And it focuses on the idea of the need to press on beyond the basic doctrines they've already learned. Therefore, chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works or of faith toward God. Let's not get wrapped up in going back and doing everything all over again. In verses 4 through 8, 
We have a warning section that's a difficult challenge for a lot of people. They think this indicates that, that you can lose your salvation or that these uh, recipients of the letter may not have genuinely be saved. And as I've pointed out, the terms here all indicate full, genuine salvation. And the warning isn't that they might lose their salvation. The warning isn't that they weren't really saved. The warning is... If you fall away, if you do not hold fast to your confession, if you are not consistent in going forward, if you do not uh, maintain your walk with the Lord and you just let it slide and you begin to backslide, then you can reach a point in carnality as you uh, back up in your spiritual life under divine discipline that is tantamount to a point of no return where you can't recover and you'll be taken out under the sin unto death. And that's four through eight. But the positive side of it is that the writer says he's convinced of better things concerning you. And we desire, verse 11, that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And this is the uh, introduction here, this idea of hope a confident expectation of something in the future. And I want you to notice, as I went through the text, I started uh, highlighting different phrases. I didn't start picking up on this and decide to do this until I got down to chapter uh, chapter 6. But you'll notice that I've tried to use some different colors to bring out some different ideas, and that's the kind of thing that you should be doing as you're uh, listening and as you're reading through through the text. The focus here in this encouragement is that we are to realize eventually future idea. Looking toward our future destiny, we will ultimately realize that expectation we have in terms of our eternal destiny. So the the, uh, precursor to that, though, is that we have to exercise diligence in our spiritual growth to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That hope is a key word. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's another key word to highlight. Promises, promises, promises become a key part of this next section. Verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham. Verse 15, we have promise again. Verse 17, we have promise again. So we see how this idea is picked up. And in the encouragement section here, the key words are hope and promise. Now, when we get down to the end of chapter 6, these last two verses here are critical to the transition to chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7 and 8 become the next uh, part, the first part of the next section. We've looked through three sections now. 7-1 begins the next section. This is the transition. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. An anchor is that which gives stability to a ship. Even if a ship is out on the open sea, if there is a storm, they will often throw the anchor overboard in order to give some ballast to the ship and to give it some stability in the midst of stormy seas. So hope that future destiny, no matter how tough The storms of life may be, no matter how rough the adversities get, no matter how overwhelming life seems, 
That which gives stability and confidence to us now is an understanding that God's in control, Jesus Christ controls history, Jesus Christ controls the details of our life, and Jesus Christ is the one who is going to get us through the, the storms of life. So that hope is an anchor of our soul, a hope that is sure and steadfast, and one which, what? Enters within the veil. See, now he starts to introduce a little more of this tabernacle terminology. And I, really, I have pointed it out a little bit as we've gone through here, but when we get to chapter 9, we're just right in the middle of the tabernacle and all the terminology. But let, one reason I wanted to do this review is so we'd go back and see how this writer is gradually laying the foundation and has laid the foundation for what he's going to do in chapter 9. So that hope is sure and steadfast and one that enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, what? According to the order of Melchizedek. Another key phrase to emphasize, and we'll see it repeated four or five times in chapters 7 and 8 leading up to chapter 9. So now we go back. Remember, he had introduced Melchizedek, Back in chapter, in chapter 5, but then in verse 11 he says, well, you're just dull of hearing, so I can't tell you about him. And then he gives him a little uh, uh, verbal discipline for uh, chapter 6, and now he comes back to the topic of Melchizedek. And in chapter 4, the focus is on the Melchizedekian priesthood versus the Jewish Aaronic high priesthood and Levitical priesthood, that the Melchizedekian priesthood was not based on physical requirements, on parentage, on genealogy, on any of those factors, but was a divine appointment. It was also a royal priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood, or Aaronic priesthood, was one that was passed on from generation to generation. It had physical qualifications. It had um, it was limited in its uh, application, and so the uh, it, he's going to demonstrate the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. So in the first four verses, he introduces us to Melchizedek, explains why he is significant, and just those few verses in Genesis are all we know of Melchizedek, but he shows that Melchizedek must clearly have been superior to Abraham if Abraham brought ties to Melchizedek. And then when we get to verse 4, chapter 7, verse 4 through uh, yeah, 4 through 10, we see the superiority of Melchizedek to Aaron. And he, this is where we have the comparison and contrast between the descendants of Levi and the, and the Melchizedekian priesthood. And the author's pointing out that there's a need for a superior high priest, that the change of priesthood, when we get down to, when we get down to verse 12, he says, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. That there is a shift that's occurred from the Levitical priesthood to the Melchizedekian high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And a change of priesthood, priesthood causes a change of the law. Now, there's another key word that needs to be identified and traced through here is this concept of law and covenant and promise. Those are key ideas that run through this section. 
and that there is a uh, shift with a new priest who arises, verse 15, he arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. And it's attested of him, verse 17, we have a repetition of our quote from Psalm 110, 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 18 picks up this legal terminology, and it's so important to notice all the times you have law, commandment, oath, sworn, all these terms relate to legal action. And the legal action is that to change the priesthood, you change the law. The covenant shifts. And so now he's in the setup for why there has to be a new covenant and that that new covenant brings in a new new high priesthood. In verses 23 to 25, his basic argument is that the former priests were mortal, the Levitical priests were mortal, Jesus is eternal. And as such, he is able to save forever, verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who, what? Draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, that picks up in the same terminology that we are to draw near to God as our high priest and that we can uh, go to the um, throne of grace to obtain grace and mercy. And so he picks up these same ideas related to the high priestly ministry of Christ. Now, here in verse 25, it's talking about those who draw near to God through him and that salvation here isn't justification, phase one, salvation continues to be talked about in terms of spiritual growth and the future destiny. And then verse 26 down through 28, he comes to a little summary of this uh, argument he's presented, that it's fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. See, back in chapter 5, he had made that point that the, the human high priest had an, was an inadequate priesthood because they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. And he concludes that the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but it's the word of the oath, God's oath, that appointed a son made perfect forever. That leads up to where he, what he points out at the beginning of chapter 8. Now, the main point, the summary. What have I been saying? The main point is this, that we have such a high priest who has now taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Where did we see that phrase before? That takes us all the way back to the introduction. See how he's just laying all these things out. This is, this is brilliant literature. It is so, there's so many threads interwoven together here. Uh, we have a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. He is a minister in the sanctuary. Now, here we pick up another new word group, this word group for minister. And the word group that we have here that is, that is brought in in verse 1 is that he is a, or in verse 2, he's a minister. This is the word liturgos. Now, we're going to see this word as a noun for minister. We're going to see the verb form latruo for service. We're going to see the word liturgis 
for minister, our ministry rather, and then we're going to see the word latreia for worship. Now, all those words are the same basic root, and the idea has to do with our whole life of service. This is the same word that's used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when when uh, Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's that word there, service to God. We are living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service to God. That's the word uh, related to uh, worship, related to our ministry. It's this same, same basic word group. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, Jesus is focused on as one who's seated at the as our high priest at the right hand of the Father. In verse two, he's a minister in the sanctuary, and the word there is hagias, the holy place. I just wish translators would be consistent because we get into chapter nine, and we talk about the holy place in the tabernacle. It's the same word hagias, and so if you look translate it, if you translate it uh, sanctuary here. And holy place there, and it's the same word. People miss the connection. He is a minister in the holy place and in the true tabernacle. And the word that is uh, translated tabernacle here is the Greek word skene, S-K-E-N-E. Greek word means a tent or a dwelling place. This this word comes across in... Um, they use it in theater to describe a part of the stage. It's uh, picked up in Russian, has the same idea there, but it all goes back to the uh, basic, uh, excuse me, basic Hebrew word, which is shakan, which means the dwelling place, which is the word from which we get the, the word shekinah. And we'll look at that in just a minute in terms of the Hebrew. So Jesus is a minister, a liturgos, in the holy place, the hagios, in the true tabernacle. And in the third verse then, he, the writer of Hebrews just states out a general principle. Starts with the four. He's going to explain this. He says, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Offering gifts and sacrifices is the service that he does. That's, that's that Latruo uh, uh, that he does is to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's the function of the liturgos. So he goes on to say in the last part of verse 3, it is necessary that this high priest, this one, also have something to offer. What's he going to offer? That question is left hanging here, and we don't get to it to the middle of chapter 9. Then verse 4, now if he were on the earth, so here he comes back and he says, it's a little bit of an aside. He says, look, if he were just a human, he couldn't do this. It would not matter. He could not function as a priest. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all because he doesn't fit the qualifications of the law. And then in verse 5, he says, Levitical priests served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things so that the tabernacle and later the temple on the earth is introduced here as a copy and a shadow of a heavenly archetype, a heavenly tabernacle. So Levitical priests simply served a copy, but he, as high priest, has entered into the 
true tent or dwelling place of God. So verse 5 says that these uh, human priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according, according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So the pattern comes out of the heavenly archetype. And then the conclusion at this point was, but now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. What's it based on? It's based on better promises and a better covenant. That legal foundation is established. He has a more excellent ministry like Turgoth. Again, the emphasis all through here has been on that service in terms of his ministry. It's a service of worship. Then there was the digression related to the New Covenant. The author goes through this digression to show that all of this, the new high priesthood, the new structure of things, relates to this new covenant that God is making with Israel. And the conclusion of that we touched on last week in verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete But whatever is becoming obsolete, it hadn't fully passed from the scene yet because they're still sacrificing and serving and functioning on the Temple Mount, but it's the closing days of the Second Temple because divine judgment's on the way. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now that brings us to where we stopped last time, to chapter 9, verse 1. We're still in the middle of the fourth section. The fourth section doesn't end until uh, chapter 10, verse 39. And the exhortation, the challenge doesn't begin until 1019. So we still have all of nine to go through. And the first 18 verses of 10 before we hit the exhortation, he's still teaching them and explaining the impact of Christ's high priestly ministry. And if you look at the proportion within the layout of of Hebrews, this is the core issue in the book of Hebrews, is understanding the significance of Christ's present high priestly ministry for the church-age believer. But the backdrop for this has to be somewhat of an understanding of what was going on in the Old Testament in the tabernacle and in the temple. But he focuses his thinking on the whole worship in the, in the tabernacle. So he writes, let's just read these first uh, five verses here. It says, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. And guess what that Greek word is that's translated divine worship? It's the Greek word latreia. See, I've, we've introduced this whole terminology now that was lying there in those first six verses of chapter 8. Uh, so this connects right back. But instead of translating it the way they did in chapter 8, they, they translate with worship, which was never there in chapter 8. Uh, it should be had regulations of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle or a dwelling place prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. So there's... Uh, he only focuses on two things. The lampstand, which was on, as you went in, was on the left side. 
The table of showbread, that's the table and the sacred bread, that was on the right side. This is the outer section of the, uh, of the tent of meeting called the holy place. And then there was a second veil in the tabernacle, which was called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now he's going to build everything out of this. This isn't the first time the writer of Hebrews has said, well, we're not going to talk too much about it now, and then he pauses and then he comes back and uh, talks about it in detail. So what we're going to do now is just a little introduction into the tabernacle. Go over to the tabernacle. The Hebrew word there on the screen is mishkan, which is the Hebrew word for tabernacle. Shakan is the same word, skene. It's a, uh, by putting the M at the beginning, it makes the verb a participle. It can become a noun. So this is a look at the tabernacle. And I'll just give you a couple of points and then we'll have show and tell. That's what I love about the tabernacle. It's a real hands-on thing. Tabernacle translates the Hebrew word mishkan, which means a sanctuary, a tabernacle, or a dwelling place. It's used in various places. Uh, one time in Ezra 7.15, it comes from the root shakan, which means to settle or to dwell. The Greek word is skene. For some reason, the Greek didn't come across, which means a tent, a tabernacle, or a dwelling place. Sometimes it's called the tent of meeting or the tent of testimony because, of course, the ark of the testimony, the ark had the tablets of uh, the law, which was the testimony, and that was inside the, um, inside the ark of the covenant. And in the, uh, when God would come, his presence was often indicated by a cloud, the Shekinah is the word for his dwelling presence. Shekinah doesn't mean glory in and of itself. It just emphasizes his dwelling presence. But there's always a manifestation of his dwelling presence. And that is indicated usually by a cloud, by smoke. Uh, if it's dark, it's indicated by lightning or fire. Light was used as a symbol or representation of uh, God's essence. So it would look something like that would be what the Israelites experienced with the pillar of fire hovering over the Holy of Holies in the in the uh, tabernacle. Now, in the outer court, there were two basic things that were there. There's the laver, and I'm going to go down here because we have everything set up down here. Here's a model that we use in a prep school to teach the tabernacle. And it has the, the holy place of the tent of meeting here and the various different uh, coverings. And we'll go into those as to what their significance was, why they were made. Each one had to be made a certain way, was made out of different fabric, made out of different animal skins. And you can, and then in the outer court, you have the, the laver, which I think is missing. 
Yep, no cleansing. They're just going to be out of fellowship. And the uh, altar. Now, over here, these are built to scale. These are the pieces. This is a set that uh, was made by um, Goodseed and was designed, and they did a tremendous amount of research on this to make sure that they could build uh, a set that would be uh, all proportional according to the uh, descriptions in, in Scripture. So in the outer court, you had the uh, brazen altar and the labor. And you can see by looking at those that the, the, the altar was enormous. And later on in the Solomonic Temple, in the first temple and the second temple, you could probably put 20 or 30 priests up on top of the altar. It, it was huge. And when there were the high feast days, they would set up stations around the altar where they were sacrificing the lambs, and then they would pass up what was going to be burnt as a burnt offering on the altar. And then there was the labor, which was set out in front for, for the washing of the hands and the washing of the feet for the ceremonial cleansing before the priest could go into the presence of God. Now, once he went inside the tent of meeting, there's two rooms. There's an outer veil that he goes through into the first room called the holy place, and then there's an interior veil that separated the holy place from the interior holy of holies. And inside the outer section were two things, three things. Only two are mentioned here. There's a little bit of a, of a uh, description challenge in the way this is written. Uh, you have two things. You have the table of showbread, which had the, the bread had to be continually changed, and that, of course, repre- all of these things say something about Jesus. G- the the uh, altar represents Jesus in terms of his being a sacrifice. The labor, Jesus, it, it is Jesus' death that cleanses us from sin. The table of showbread represents Jesus as the bread of life. The uh, lampstand the candelabra, the menorah, represented Jesus as the light of the world. And then up against, right next to the veil, you had the upside-down altar of incense. And this was to represent Christ's priestly ministry of prayer and intercession for us continuously. And the smoke from the incense would go up, pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies. And then inside the Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant, which which looked like this. And it was a box made of acacia wood covered with gold, representing the hypostatic union of Christ. Inside the box were placed a... A pot of manna, Ten Commandments, which were broken, and Aaron's rod that budded. Each of those represented sins. And then the mercy seat, the lid that covered it, represented the uh, mercy of God. The blood on the Day of Atonement was placed on top of the mercy seat. The cherubim represent the justice, the righteousness of God, and the blood covers the sin, and this is a picture 
uh, atonement and the cleansing of sin that comes from atonement. Now, these are the basic um, basic pieces of furniture in in the ark. So here we have, I've got some pictures here, some diagrams of the labor. And this, this, some of these pictures are from a tabernacle in the wilderness that was set up uh, down, it used to be set up down in the southern part of uh, Judah out, not too far uh, from a place called the Pillars of Solomon. And so this is a picture of the uh, labor they built there, and so you can get an idea of its uh, size and proportion. Then, uh, here we go. I got that one picture out of order. This is a picture from up above looking down on how they had uh, constructed this. This was all built according to the patterns laid out in, in the Scripture, and you can see the brazen altar and the laver out in front. And then there's another shot, as you would see it from ground level. Picture of the altar with the horns of the altar prominent. Then inside, the walls were of gold, and on the left side you would have the golden candlestick, the candelabra, the table of showbread representing uh, God is the one who provides life and the means for life, and the altar of incense. Then inside the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant. So what we've done so far, in terms of the just an introduction to the tabernacle, is just run through some of the main uh, furniture, looked at the key word, point number one. Point number two talked about the dwelling presence of God. Point number three which I mentioned, is that the term Shekinah comes out of the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament. It's never used in the Old Testament. It's a rabbinical term that gets introduced based on the verb Shekinah, to dwell, indicating the dwelling presence of God. And then fourth point, just all this and just four points of introduction, there was a temporary tent a tent of meeting that was that was set up by Moses during that year when they were constructing all of the furniture for the uh, for the ta- tabernacle. Because if you go into Exodus, you'll see that right after uh, God comes down before the uh, tabernacle is built, Moses is meeting with God in the tent of meeting, but they haven't even built the tabernacle. So it was a temporary uh, meeting place. So apparently before they... Uh, created the mobile worship center. They had a uh, one of these uh, temporary buildings outside that people put in their backyard that was sanctified, and that's where Moses went to meet with God. It was all designed, it was an ingenious system to break everything down and to be very simple and transportable while they were going through the desert. Now, all of this becomes the backdrop for explaining critical doctrines 
in the New Testament related to the spiritual life, related to Christ's present high priestly ministry. All of this is embedded within all of this ritual that occurred in the Old Testament. So before we get into a lot of the details of of Hebrews 9, we're also going to spend some time going back into Exodus and developing this in a little more detail to understand the dynamics of of this whole ministry. One of the things that I want to do is not only look at the basic function of the uh, or the operation of the tabernacle tabernacle itself, but also look at the uh, offerings and the sacrifices that are laid out uh, later on in Leviticus so we can just have some understanding. You have these different offerings, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and the grain offerings, and what's the significance to to each of those. So that just gets our gets a, a, our taste buds oriented to the next little section before we get started. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study these things tonight and to get into an understanding of how the Old Testament foreshadows the New Testament, how you provided these witnesses to your to the person of Christ and to his work on the cross in the ritual of Israel. But it also lays out some important principles for us to understand in terms of Christ's present high priestly ministry and the role of his ascension to the heavenly archetype of the tabernacle. And, Father, as we study these things, help us to put together accurately all of these different details and the uh, different facets of these doctrines. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.